Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, a podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. In 1852, a bridge to cross the East River between Brooklyn and New York would be conceived, a river that many simply believed was uncrossable. The realization of this vision would culminate in one of the most iconic structural engineering achievements, but behind it lies an incredible human story. And at the heart of this story is Emily Warren Roebling, whose name is synonymous with what would become known to the world as the Brooklyn Bridge. Imagine for a moment that it's 1872 and your name is Emily Warren Roebling. Now imagine you're married to a man by the name of Washington Roebling. Now, he's the chief engineer of the Brooklyn Bridge, and because of the importance of this huge engineering project, he's a pretty prominent person in New York and Brooklyn. Now imagine it's one night in 1872, and your husband is carried into the house in great pain. He's suffering from partial paralysis, he has severe pain in every limb, and he's got a piercing headache. Now the doctors arrive, and they try and treat him, and then very soon they take you aside and tell you to prepare for the worst. You ask them how long has he got, and they reply that he won't last the night. He'll be dead in the morning. Now, what society expects of you is pretty straightforward. If he survives, you nurse him. If he dies, you mourn him. You certainly need not be concerning yourself when the powers that be come and try and remove him from his role as chief engineer. And perhaps more importantly... You most certainly shouldn't be attempting to provide any sort of technical input into the design and construction of this bridge. But what if you decided that you had no interest in what society expected of you? What if you decided that despite the prognosis, you'd do everything you could to get your husband better? And when the powers that be came to take the bridge off him, what if you decided that you'd do everything you could to stop that happening? And when the technical issues with the bridge start to grow... What if you decided that you'd attempt to resolve them, despite having no engineering training and this being the most technically challenging engineering project of the day? What if, when you started this journey, you were only 29 years old? This may be the story of the Brooklyn Bridge, but it's really the story of Emily Warren Roebling. But we can't start our story that night in 1872. We, we need to go much further back, quite a bit back to 1852. So this is 20 years before the fateful night in Brooklyn. Now, the winter of 1852 was particularly bitter in New York City. For days, the frozen East River had paralysed ferry traffic between Manhattan and Brooklyn. And on one of those ferries, stranded for hours in the freezing, foggy haze, John Roebling, a bridge engineer, stood beside his 15-year-old son by the name of Washington Roebling. Staring at the silhouetted hulks, John Roebling would conceive of a bridge to cross the river. And as we've said, this is a river that many simply believed was uncrossable. But John Roebling was an interesting man. He was born in Germany in 1806. He graduated with a degree in civil engineering in 1826. And in 1831, he emigrated to the New World. And by that day on the East River, sitting on the ferry, he'd completed a, a number of bridges in the US, including a suspension bridge in Pittsburgh in 1845. So they get off the ferry, they go home to the family home in Trenton, New Jersey, and John Roebling sits down and further develops the concept for a bridge between Manhattan and Brooklyn. And it would be the longest suspension bridge in the world. But it would be simply too much for people to digest, even other engineers who thought it was impossible. So the bridge would only remain a concept for the next 14 years. 
And this was a tough time for America. This was through the Civil War, through the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. But it all came to a head in the winter of 1866 when the East River froze again. But this time the consequences were much worse because Brooklyn had swelled to 400,000 inhabitants and the river remained blocked for weeks, this time not days, and that prevented more than a thousand ferry crossings per day. Now there were the inevitable political calls for action and Roebling was working on his Cincinnati Bridge when he heard that his East River Bridge concept was back on the table. The following year the New York Bridge Company was formed to deliver the bridge and its trustees appointed John Roebling as the chief engineer. Then three months after that, he presented his plans for his suspension bridge. And it would be truly monumental. And it's, it's worthwhile spending just a little bit of time on the numbers here just to see how big this thing was. So the bridge was going to be over 1.8 kilometres long. And its deck would be supported by four cables that were suspended between two limestone and granite towers. Now between these towers, it had to span 480 metres, which was much longer than anything previously attempted. And for many other engineers, Roebling's span was just simply impossible. Now, the bridge towers would be 84 metres high, so this would be considerably higher than any other structure on the New York skyline. And, you know, that's really hard for us to get our head around today when we're used to this incredibly tall New York skyline. But this bridge was going to dominate the views. Now, the New York Tower alone, it would contain, you know, an estimated of 80,000 tonne of limestone and granite. And these towers would be supported on bedrock beneath the river. But the problem was this bedrock was a long way down. So on the, the Brooklyn side, it was 12 metres below the water line but much more worryingly on the New York side it was 22 meters below the waterline and they'd have to excavate down that far and the bridge's suspension cables were also revolutionary so this is for the first time they would be made entirely of steel and Roebling declared that the structure when constructed in accordance with my designs will not only be the greatest bridge in existence but it will be the greatest engineering work of the continent and of the age. And of course, as usually happens, once someone goes out and makes a large pronouncement like that, you know, tragedy intervenes. In June 1869, when John Roebling was surveying positions for the Brooklyn Tower, he was injured in a freak accident. So he was standing on the Fulton slipway when a ferry lost control and crashed into the slipway. His foot was crushed. Doctors wanted to amputate his toes, but Roebling refused anaesthetic because he wanted to remain alert. And the operation was performed without it. Then he dismissed his doctors, so in order to manage his own treatment. But over the next few days, his condition deteriorated and deteriorated. Then on the 22nd of July, 1869, he died. To give you a feeling for the impact this had, flags were flown at half-mast in Brooklyn because that was the importance of this anticipated bridge. And the reality was, with John Roebling dead... The project itself hung in the balance. If he was the only engineer who believed this could be done, who else could stand in to to make it work? And this, of course, is when we turn to his son. Now, John Roebling's son, Washington, had come a long way from the 15-year-old boy standing beside his father on the East River Ferry. So he'd become an engineer. He graduated from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York in 1857. He had assisted his father in the design and construction of a number of bridges, and then he'd enlisted in the Union Army in 1861. He saw action, he fought in Gettysburg, and in 1865 he married a lady by the name of Emily Warren. Now, she was the daughter of a well-respected but not particularly wealthy family. And then when his father was named chief engineer for the bridge, he went back to work for him in Brooklyn. 
Now, one of his first tasks was to spend a year traveling in Europe with Emily to inspect the use of what was called caisson technology. And this technology was what his father planned to use in constructing the bridge towers below the waterline. So by the time of his father's death in 1869, he'd become intimately involved with the bridge. And he approached the trustees of the bridge and he told them he wanted the job. Now, he was quite open about the fact that he did not have the experience necessary to deliver this bridge. But he argued that there was nobody alive who had the experience to deliver this bridge because it was just so complex. Now, the New York Bridge Company trustees agreed with him. They agreed he was the man for the job. And in August 1869, Washington Roebling was appointed chief engineer for one of the biggest engineering projects undertaken in the world. At that stage, he was only 32 years of age. So his first job was to do the towers. So he turned his attention to the Brooklyn Tower. So work on the Brooklyn Tower began in March 1870 when a large caisson was launched and lowered into the East River. Now this caisson can be visualised as a 50 metre by 30 metre upturned wooden box which essentially acts like like a diving bell. And this is lowered down to the riverbed and then air pressure is pumped into the caisson and that drives out all the water. So you get this essentially encapsulated dry space at the bottom of the riverbed that people can work in. Now the air pressure also does a a second function which it actually holds up the structure. You need that air pressure there to stop the box collapsing in on itself as well. But inside this this dry space at the bottom of the river, and it was huge, so it was larger than four tennis courts, over 100 men could work and dig out the riverbed. And as this material was removed, the caisson moved downwards into the exposed hole until finally it reached bedwork. Now the caisson had a really thick timber roof and its walls were quite thick at the top, they were 2.7 metres thick, but they tapered down the sides until they got to the base and at the base they were only 200 millimetres thick. So this essentially gave a sharp edge which allowed the caisson to cut down through the mud as the material inside was removed. So what was driving the caisson downwards? Well what was happening at the same time as men were digging at the riverbed, on top of the actual caisson men were building the limestone and granite towers. So you had simultaneous construction inside the caisson digging out material on top of the caisson building a tower and the weight of that tower was driving down the caisson. Now this process continued until the caisson would eventually strike bedrock and at that time that actually filled the void inside with cement and it became part of the structure. And if you think about that you have you got this limestone and granite tower sitting on top of thick timber roof sitting on top concrete sitting on top bedrock. So this timber roof even though it was timber, it remained part of the structure and it still remains so at the bottom in the mud of the East River in New York. Working inside this caisson was a pretty hellish environment and it was compared to Dante's Inferno. So the air was incredibly humid, it was lit by calcium lights and there used to be temperatures of more than 25 degrees centigrade. So workers, usually naked from the waist up, would dig up mud and boulders and they were extracted by a scoop to a waiting barge. Now before long, the size of these boulders became a significant issue. So some of them were as long as three meters. So when the perimeter of the caisson met these boulders, they had to be broken up by hand and pulled out of the way to allow the caisson to continue below them. Now this caused huge problems because the work was painfully slow and the caisson was only descending at this point by six inches a week. So think about that, you know, you have to go 12 metres on the new on the Brooklyn side and you're only averaging 8 inches per week. It wasn't good. So Roebling knew he had to do something. So to speed things up, he decided they would use dynamite. Now think about that for a moment. You're going to use dynamite inside this very, very fragile structure to try and break up the rock. But the plan worked and they started to use the dynamite all the time and this really accelerated 
progress. So they moved from six inches a week to 18 inches a week. Now, through all this work, the workers inside the kiln had to contend with what was known as blowouts. So this is where compressed air would suddenly escape out some point of the kiln perimeter. And when it escaped outside, it would actually spray a jet of water and mud 150 metres high up above the river. And then all that water and mud would rain down on the workers who were trying to construct the tower above. Now, when this happened, the kiln would partially flood. So you can imagine what this was like inside. You hear this huge boom, you depressurize, water flows in. There's a real risk that you could be flooded out and, 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 and killed. So on one of these occasions, a, a supply shaft door burst open and the pressure in the case on, you know, suddenly and dramatically decreased. Essentially, you know, this pressure, as we talked about, is there to, to hold up the structure. And without that, you, you've got this you know, fragile case on holding up the tower above. So very in this particular case, very large loads were applied to the caisson because of the depressurization. It was fine, but to give you an idea of how close run these things, Roebling himself was in the caisson when this incident occurred. And if anything had happened to him, it would simply not have been good. Fire was also a constant threat, so with the timber roof was, was particularly vulnerable because you had naked flames inside this. If fire got up into that, it could travel through it. By 1871, the Brooklyn caisson hit rock and concrete was pumped into the chamber void and we formed our permanent base to the partially completed tower. So now with Brooklyn finished, work turned to the caisson on the New York side. And this was going to be a much more formidable task due to the expected rock depth of 22 metres. It was almost twice the depth as the Brooklyn side. So it was in Europe that Washington Roebling first heard about something called caisson disease. So from Europe there were reports of workers experiencing violent pain after completing work shifts in caissons. So in some cases paralysis or death resulted. Now little was known about the disease but it seemed to be worse and occur more frequently at greater depths where the air pressure that the workers were required to labour in was considerably higher. Now there had only been a few cases of this on the Brooklyn Tower but because of the increased depth of the New York Tower Roebling was much more concerned the caisson disease would become an issue over there. Now work on the New York caisson began in September 1871 and at a depth of 15 metres the first cases of caisson disease became evident. So some men once they left the caisson suffered headaches, violent pain and cramps in their limbs. Now the pain was described by some workers as feeling like they were having their flesh ripped from every bone. They described the headaches like they were being shot. Now, the disease was soon nicknamed the Bains because those afflicted would suddenly bend over in pain. Now, despite all this, Roebling had to press on and the caisson reached a depth of 18 metres and the disease began to afflict more workers and increase in severity. The men began suffering paralysis. By 21 metres deep, men were starting to die. Now, Roebling had engaged a guy by the name of Dr Andrew Smith to assist and try and understand the disease. But the reality was it remained elusive and no management strategy became apparent. Smith's best suggestion was that the men should spend longer decompressing as they left the caisson. So essentially they were to spend more time travelling up through the caisson, which would give them more time to adjust to the different pressure levels in the caisson as they, as they came up through it. Now the interesting thing is Smith was on, was on the right track. So caisson disease, as we now know, is caused when the nitrogen, which is in solution form in your bloodstream, is liberated and turns into gaseous form. And this happens when it's subject to rapid decreases in atmospheric pressure, which of course is what was happening when the men went from the high pressure caisson to the, the low pressure atmosphere outside. So this 
gas forms bubbles and that the bubbles in the gas can block oxygen supply in our bloodstream. And when this occurs in the limbs, that's where you get the severe pain. But when it happens in the spinal cord of the brain, the consequences are much more lethal. And Smith was on the right track with the depressurization because allowing more time for depressurization gives the body more time to dissipate the nitrogen through the lungs, thus preventing formation of the harmful bubbles. But all this wasn't known at the time, and as the construction continued, the incidence of injuries and paralysis and death continued. Then, at a depth of 24 metres on the New York side, still with no rock in sight, they hit a huge problem. They hit this layer of compacted sand and gravel that was almost impossible to remove. So now Roebling faced a really tough decision. You know, did he press on to the bedrock as he and his father had originally envisaged? Or did he cease excavation and leave this the final resting place for the New York Tower? Now, to press on would risk further paralysis and depth. Now, Roebling estimated possibly 100 more lives would die if he pressed on. But to stop now required him to evaluate whether the ground was strong enough to support the tower. Now, if it wasn't, subsidence would be a real issue for the completed bridge. So he was essentially gambling the integrity of the bridge on what he was going to do with this footing. Roebling chose to stop. He decided that this was the place to stop. It was going to be hard enough to support the tower and time would bear out the wisdom of his decision. So the New York Tower was completed in 1872, two years after the commencement of construction and three years since the death of John Roebling. But the problem was that progress, however, had come at a really high cost, not only to the workers, but to Washington Roebling himself. And to look at what happened to Washington, we need to go back a little bit. We need to leave the New York case and go back to the Brooklyn case and to one night, the 1st of December, 1870. The caisson then at that point was about 13 metres deep, almost at its final depth, when the caisson's timber roof caught fire. So what happened was slowly this small fire, which initially went unnoticed, began to work its way into the roof of the caisson. Now if this fire spread too far, it would structurally compromise the base of the tower. So Roebling estimated that the roof of the caisson was supporting over 25,000 tonne of limestone and granite at this time. Now getting this fire out was going to be paramount or else they'd lose the roof and lose the tower and they'd lose the entire caisson. But this was going to be a really difficult task to get this fire out because at this stage it had wound its way up into the timbers and it was impossible to see or just exactly to determine how far into the roof it had progressed. Roebling, as usual, threw himself at the problem. He spent almost a straight day and night in the caisson. Holes were drilled in the timber to check the progress of the fire, but they only introduced oxygen and fanned the flames. Water was spread continuously at the roof, and finally the fire appeared to be out. Shockingly, with the problem resolved, Roebling collapsed. So at this point he had started to notice he had developed some paralysis in his limbs. He was taken home to rest. He's at home, he's trying to get some rest. He gets three hours rest, but he's called for again. The fire was still burning. Worse, it was now out of control. He gets up, he goes back to the site, and at that point he realises he has only one option available. Flood the caisson. By doing this he can hope that the rising water would rise and penetrate to the timbers and extinguish the fire in the roof. But the problem was it was an incredibly risky option. There was no guarantee you could pump water into the caisson at the same rate that you could release the air. And remember, maintaining that pressure is critical for its integrity. So doing this, you could irreparably damage or collapse the actual caisson. But Washington felt he had no option. It took seven hours to flood the caisson using fire engines, fire boats and tugs. And a completely exhausted Roebling stayed on to watch. They waited. Two and a half days later, 
they pumped the water out and they went in to inspect. The water had done its job. The fire was out and the caisson was structurally sound. They'd saved the bridge. Then fast forward to 1872 and they've just completed the second caisson on the New York side and Roebling again would be stricken by the bends but this time much worse than when he'd been dealing with the fire. He collapsed, paralysis set in and he was bedridden and in constant pain and as we said doctors did not believe he would survive the night and the whole project now was again in jeopardy with the demise of another chief engineer expected. It is here, however, that the real human story begins. It is here that Roebling defies the odds and fights on to see through the completion of the bridge. And more importantly, it's here where Emily Warren Roebling really enters our story. <laughs> ¶¶ 